Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Professor Brian Taylor. Brian is Professor of Political Science at Syracuse University. Brian focuses in his work on Russian politics and the development of the Russian state. And Brian has written books in this regard, focusing on civil military relations in Russia, state building in Russia, and also a book called The Code of Putinism. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes, which really explores this kind of complicated issue of to what extent is Putin himself determining the direction and approach of the current ruling Russian regime? And to what extent might there be common behaviors or patterns of thinking that go beyond just Putin himself and exist within Russia's ruling political and economic elite and maybe also within the broader population. So I really look forward to unpacking some of these issues further on the podcast today. Thanks for joining me today, Brian. Thanks very much, Jessica. Happy to be here. Following the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine in February this year, commentators wondered to what extent we should attribute this decision purely to the character of Putin himself. So Putin as an individual, his own maybe psychology, his own preferences, and to what extent we should look at this as a decision that is being driven by a broader phenomenon within the Russian regime, or maybe even some ideas or approach that exists within a proportion of the Russian population as well. In that regard, I wondered if first you could talk briefly about why you decided to call your book The Code of Putinism, as opposed to just the code of Putin or Putin's code? It was something I gave some thought to because obviously Putin is the central figure in the system and the driver of the system. The the reason I chose to talk about Putinism more generally was partially because I wanted to talk also not just about the sort of ideas animating the regime, but also the system of rule. And that I thought deserved the label of Putinism. But in terms of the ideas, I think it was important for me to bring out that it's not just Putin who shares some of the mentality that I attribute to him. There are other figures who've been with him throughout his career who tend to be of the same generation, who tend to have a similar worldview. So although the regime is very much concentrated around the personality of Putin, there is a broader group of the elite that in some sense uh, shares his worldview. Mm -hmm. So can you outline the key ideas that you've identified that inform this sort of code of Putinism? Sure. So first, I guess I should say that I think of what I call a code of Putinism or a mentality behind it as being not a pure ideology in the sense that Marxism-Leninism was. It's not this sort of cohesive, internally consistent set of ideas that serves as a guide to action for the regime. I think it's a bit looser than that. And I think it's not just a set of ideas, but I also talk about what I call habits and emotions. But in terms of ideas, I think the first one that really stands out when we look throughout Putin's 22 years in charge is that he's a statist, which means prioritizing the power of the Russian state and the position of the Russian state 
and it has kind of this two-faced aspect to us. One is internally looking and one is externally looking. So internally, he thinks the state has to be strong vis-a-vis -vis society. And in some sense, society exists to serve the state. And externally, he thinks it's very important for Russia to be considered a great power on the international system. And he sees these two things as reinforcing each other. Very early on in his career, he said, you know, whenever we've had a weak state internally, we were at risk of external dismemberment. So you need a strong state outside and inside. Uh, a second thing that I think is important to his set of ideas is what we could call conservatism or even potentially more accurately, illiberalism. He doesn't really believe in, I think, some of the key aspects of liberalism historically in terms of the rights of the individual, autonomy of the individual, importance of autonomy, private sphere, private property, rule of law, some of those things that constrain the state vis-a-vis -vis individuals. He has a much more kind of conservative view in which there is a collective that needs to hold together and the values and identity of that collective is more important than your individual you know, take on things and your individual autonomy. And then uh, the third thing that I think is important to the set of ideas of what I would call Team Putin are anti-Americanism or anti-Westernism. This, I think, used to be somewhat controversial. It's probably less controversial now to say this, but I think from the very beginning, or at least very early on in his presidency, he's kind of been animated by this notion that the West is out to get Russia and out to get him, and that these are longstanding policies driven, first of all, by the Americans, but also subscribed to by uh, their allies, or what he sometimes calls their vassals, so to weaken Russia, to undermine Russia, uh, you know, and sees this as the enemy which Russia is kind of struggling against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I find it interesting also how some of these ideas kind of overlap. So that idea of a strong internal state, you know, what is a strong state? It's one where there is strong order, strong control, strong stability, as opposed to maybe thinking of a strong state as one where there's a vibrant civil society and, you know, pluralism and a diversity of opinions that can be expressed in the public domain. So I'm interested how you noted in your book, there's almost sort of a juxtaposition in terms of the, the framing or the key mindset of, I guess, Putin himself, maybe others in his inner circle, where stability and order is viewed as contradictory in some ways to what's seen as maybe a chaotic pluralistic society where there's some kind of free for all. Could you talk a bit more about that framing? So one of the other aspects of Putinism that I talk about is what I call habits. And I should say, for those of an academic bent, I take the this notion of habits, emotions, and ideas as guides to human action from Max Weber, the German sociologist, as well as obviously rational self-interest. But thinking about habits, so it's an unconscious tendency, you don't really think about. And I feel like Team Putin and Putin himself really value stability, order, control, those kinds of things. And I think if we look at Putin's biography from early on, we can see aspects of that. And we don't have time to go into that, but I talk about it in the book some, but if we just think about his professional career, he's been a state official his entire career. He served in one of the most hierarchical control-oriented organizations in the Soviet Union, the KGB, 
And I, I know it's a bit of a cliche to say, oh, Putin, he's a former KGB agent, but it would be surprising to me if it didn't shape his worldview in some way. And that it's worth noting many of his closest allies also have that same background. But even after he left the KGB, he went to work for government. And so he's used to bureaucracy, hierarchy. And I think that comes with a certain notion about where stability is. And as you rightly point out, it's kind of juxtaposed to this flip side of how freedom can lead into chaos, anarchy, disorder, those kinds of things. And I think we see this most clearly with the way Putin and his associates think about protest, revolution, those sorts of things. They never see it as something that's really driven by popular grievances, popular dissatisfaction, that kind of thing, something that bubbles up from down below. It's always something that's controlled and stimulated by someone from above. So if protests break out in Ukraine in 2004 or in 2013 or in Georgia in 2003 or in even the Middle East during Mm -hmm. the Arab Spring, there's always someone who's controlling that. It's not about internal sort of desires of people for freedom or anything like that. And it probably won't surprise listeners to hear that the group that's controlling it is always seen as the United States and the West, that they're stirring up trouble. And this is done to, to weaken and undermine Russia and countries close to it. One final point, I think, is this notion that I referred to earlier, but I think it we see it here in this juxtaposition between order control versus freedom is this notion that society in some sense serves the state, that the primacy of the state is an important value for Russia and it has this privileged position rather than seeing the state as a servant of society kind of works the other way around in Putin's mind, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And almost also this idea of the collective and what's good for the collective, maybe being also juxtaposed to individual rights and preferences. Something else that I think is not always taken into account is this importance for Putin himself, maybe others around him, to feel respected and powerful. So to feel that Russia is somehow in the league of great powers, that Russia is somehow respected on the world stage. Now, obviously, ironically, the way in which Putin maybe goes around trying to achieve that actually has the opposite effect. But I'm interested if you can say more about that factor, that basic sort of coding of the desire for respect and power. We already talked about this notion of great power statism and how that's really important to Putin and the people around him and much of the Russian elite. And there's this widespread opinion uh, among these people, which is not entirely wrong, obviously, that the collapse of the Soviet Union in terms of Russia's historical status was what Putin once referred to as a great geopolitical catastrophe. And so it's important for Russia to rebuild and reclaim this status as a great power and to earn the respect of other great powers and be treated by these other great powers as an equal and seen as an equal. And here we move, I think, not just from the realm of ideas, but also to the realm of emotions and feelings. I I think this is really personal for these people who worked in the Soviet bureaucracy at kind of the height of Cold War power in the 1970s when they became one of the two nuclear superpowers equal to the United States and were treated as such. And then they felt 
with the collapse and what happened with the Russian economy in the 90s, that they had been humiliated, disrespected, ignored. And so it was about status and it was about resentment and this feeling that the world was out to get them, the West is out to get them, we're not being treated fairly. And the only way we're going to get that respect back is if we build our power, if we reassert our sovereignty, if we reestablish control. And part of that involves having a kind of sphere of influence around Russia, that that's the mark of being a great power is you've got control over your entire quote unquote neighborhood. And if those countries wanted to seek more autonomy from Russia, maybe pursue close relations with the West, that was some kind of malicious plot by the West to weaken them as a great power, to not respect their spheres, to divide them up and weaken them. And so uh, I think both this idea about great power status and these feelings about what had happened with the Soviet collapse and in the 1990s sort of powerfully come together in some ways lead us to where we are today, I think. Mm -hmm. And we can never know what would have happened otherwise if, let's say, Putin hadn't been chosen as successor. Although, you know, as you note in your book, there was a kind of a confluence between maybe what was more broadly desired amongst the populations after a kind of chaotic decade of the 1990s, maybe a stronger leader or someone who was going to be seen to bring more order and control. But we can never know what would have happened if someone else had have come into power or if Putin had have left power after his first term, etc. Do you see it as in some ways inevitable that we would have gotten to the point of Russia becoming, as we're seeing, you know, quite an oppressively authoritarian regime? Or could there have been alternate pathways for Russia? We did see that kind of political opening in the 1990s, but then a closing again in the last couple of decades. I'm among the group of political scientists who sees political developments as pretty contingent and therefore I would hesitate to label almost any sort of historical or political outcome as inevitable. I think there are always alternative historical pathways. So as you know, starting in the late 1980s under Mikhail Gorbachev, and then to a certain extent continuing under Boris Yeltsin, Russia did become more open. It did become more liberal and democratic than it had been historically. And this was part of a general tendency in the world in the 1980s and 1990s. And many people thought this was the wave of the future. It's turned out to be more complicated. But if we look at Russian society, I don't think there's any reason to say that it, it couldn't have stayed more open as it went forward. It's Russian society is highly educated, you know, highly urbanized, relatively wealthy. Uh, it's not a poor country overall. And countries like that often succeed at becoming democratic. And that's just a pattern, you know, if we look over decades and not over a snapshot, that's a pattern that often reappears. And if we look at what Russians tell people they think in opinion polls, and we've got lots of survey data now over the last three plus decades, they believe in things like free speech, free elections, you know, individual liberties. Obviously, in some ways, they're more conservative on certain issues, uh, but there's nothing in Russian culture or society that I think makes authoritarianism inevitable. I think it was a choice. And the choice was driven largely by, you know, the group of people who came to power in 2000 with Putin. Now, having said that, I, I think we should point out that the previous president, Boris Yeltsin, 
made plenty of mistakes and two in particular I'd like to single out. First of all, in 1993, when he had the opportunity to impose a new constitution after a constitutional crisis, the one he imposed was heavily presidentialist, gave a lot of power to the president. So although the constitution did recognize individual rights and liberties and did have some checks and balances in it, it was weighted more towards the presidency. So that was uh, a mistake that I think mm -hmm. he maybe couldn't take advantage of, but that affected how things developed. And the second big mistake, I think, was his choice of successor. Uh, I think he did not see Vladimir Putin as a foe of democracy at the time. He saw him as a potentially capable ruler who not only would protect Yeltsin's personal interests, but also would make Russia stronger while still keeping it democratic. And that obviously has not turned out to be true. But I think choices were made there, and it could have definitely gone in a different direction under different circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we also had, as you note in your book, in this sort of almost like hyper-presidentialist system, there was also under Putin an increasing weakening of institutional frameworks. So as someone who is certainly much more knowledgeable than I am about this region and about their sort of internal politics of Russia, were you surprised by Russia's full-scale invasion on the 24th of February. I mean, we had the buildup of troops and most people, certainly myself included, did not expect a full-scale invasion despite, you know, some intelligence reports suggesting that maybe there would be. What was your thinking at that time and were you surprised by that outcome? My honest answer is yes and no. I mean, I actually did an interview about a week before the war started and they asked me to Put a probability on it. And I really couldn't. I said it's 50-50. So let me talk about both sides of that 50-50. Mm -hmm. The part of me that didn't think it was likely was I couldn't really imagine how a renewed war or an expanded war, since they already had been at war for the last eight years, starting in 2014, but a renewed and larger war was going to work out well for Russia. Whether they confined their military activity to the southeast, the so-called Donbass region, or whether they tried to take the entire state, which it turns out they tried to do, I, I could not see them succeeding because I expected first Ukrainian resistance. And I also expected that even if they did have territorial gains, they were just going to do what they did with the war they sponsored in 2014, which was push the rest of Ukrainian society closer to the West. So Every time Putin has tried to grab stronger you know, control over Ukraine, it's had the opposite effect of making Ukrainians just more desire getting out of the Russian orbit, declaring their independence, seeking relationships with the West and the EU and, and NATO. So I couldn't imagine it really working out. So in that sense, I thought it was irrational. On the other hand, if we look at the way Putin has talked over the years, not just over the last year or two, but over a longer period of time, it's clear that he didn't really think of Ukraine as a separate nation or a legitimate separate state. He said that before. We know that early on in his presidency, he was talking to people about how we have to you know, reassert our control over Ukraine or we're going to, quote unquote, lose Ukraine. And his language had become more strident over time. And so by the summer of 2021, he was spending his time writing long pseudo-historical essays about Russian and Ukrainian unity. So for that reason, it did seem it was something that he was seriously considering. And then by the time we get to 
the December January period, the United States is telling everyone, you know, look at what they're doing, look at the buildup that's underway, releasing intelligence that made it clear that they were putting in place the troops that would allow a fairly large scale intervention. So on that side of things, both in terms of Putin's attitude towards Ukraine and the military buildup that was seen, it did seem a real possibility. So it was sort of hard to believe, right? Because it didn't seem like if we think about Russia's interests over the long term, this would work out well for them. But uh, it seemed more and more likely as we got closer to you know, the zero day, as it were. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you quite a difficult, a bit hypothetical question that no one can really answer. But since the full-scale invasion, some people are saying, well, if only Putin was removed from power, you know, we would see an end to all of this. Everything would just go back to, you know, normal relations, etc. But I'm wondering, how do you sort of disentangle that? Like, to what extent do you think, I, I mean, personally, I don't think Putin will be removed from power anytime soon, but sort of hypothetically, if Putin himself was not in the leading seat in Russia, is there a certain kind of momentum to what's happening or to the kinds of ideas that have informed Putin's own decision-making that might nevertheless continue or that would still be kind of compelling in some way, even if Putin himself was not there? Or do you think that really a lot is to do with the individual of Putin himself, and that if it wasn't Putin sitting in the driving seat, as it were, we would see quite different attitude towards Ukraine, different attitude towards relations with Europe, etc. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. To a certain extent, I tried to wrestle with some of these issues in a piece I wrote for Foreign Affairs a couple of months ago called The Power Struggle After Putin, where I talk about what might happen if Putin, for some reason, leaves the scene unexpectedly. I should say I agree with you entirely. There doesn't seem to be any reason to think that's likely to happen soon, either because of a coup or a revolution or because of you know some health emergency or, or that kind of thing. I think it, I, you can see I'm hesitating because it's a complicated answer. I, I do think we have to say that this war is in some sense Putin's war and that a different leader might have taken uh, a different trajectory. Having said everything I said earlier about this code of Putinism and how he has people around him who see the world a similar way, I, I don't think this war was inevitable. And if someone else had been there, it, it might not have played out the same way. Now, having said that, if he suddenly leaves power, what does it mean for you know the war? Hard to say. It would depend on what followed. I don't think we would necessarily see a smooth transition to a new leader, although we could. I think there are quite a few people in the Russian elite. It's hard to know how many, but quite a few uh, among the economic and political elite who recognize this war has been a disaster for Russia uh, in the long term. And so it may be an opportunity for a different direction uh, if he were to fall from power. But since he's not going to fall from power, I don't think in a time that's meaningful for this war, I guess I still want to say that in the long run, I, I feel like this is going to be seen as a strategic defeat for Russia in a a very large blunder by Putin himself. I think the economic and military costs that Russia has already faced and that will continue to face as long as the war goes on will accumulate and really hurt. What I said earlier was a key goal of the Russian leadership was to establish Russia's status as one of the great powers. I think they've weakened themselves going forward. I also don't think Russia will ever 
successfully resubjugate Ukraine to Russian control again. So in that sense, the objectives are unachievable. I think what Putin should do, he's not asking me for advice, but what he should do is declare victory and go home and say, you know, we've substantially demilitarized and denazified Ukraine. That's quotes on both of those terms, because that's how he described it. And say we, you know, liberated Luhansk, we've liberated most of the Donbass or try to come to some kind of deal. But I don't think he's going to do that. I think he's quite determined. I think he feels like he has to continue at this point. So I think the war, unfortunately, will continue as long as Russia has the resources to continue it and as long as Putin stays in power. So in in that sense, I think He's hoping to outlast Ukraine and outlast the West and hoping for either some kind of military or economic or political collapse in Ukraine or a loss of Western unity. And I wouldn't rule either of those things out, but I think they're unlikely. So I think at the moment we're in for, unfortunately, more war, even if, you know, in the fall at some point, maybe the intensity of it dies down a bit, both sides being you know, relatively exhausted from a pretty intense level of warfare. But I think the war is with us for a while, unfortunately. And I guess I I do want to end by reiterating one point that I've already made, but I think Mm -hmm. it's important to say that even though a lot of people in the, the Russian elite share kind of imperialist attitudes about Ukraine and that sort of thing, it was Putin who made the decision to try and solve this through military means. I don't think that was inevitable if someone else had been in charge. So yes, it's Russia's war, but also I think he bears a substantial part of the blame for this war and the horrible consequences that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, certain ideas might be widely held, but the way that that is translated into actions will then depend very much on the decisions of specific individual or specific individuals. It's not inevitable that those ideas are going to get translated into actions in a specific way. I I keep wondering because we're seeing these just incredible costs by any accounts for Russia, militarily, lives lost, you know, economically. Are we going to see some shift in action also as a result of those massive mounting costs for Russia? Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you being on the podcast today and helping us to further understand. Thanks very much, Jessica. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.